2015, a recruiting algorithm used to sift through job applicants at Amazon was found to be biased in favor of male applicants for open job roles. Then again, in 2019, researchers learned that a computer model used on over 200 million patients in U.S. hospitals favored white patients over black patients in terms of predicting needs for extra medical care. In another disturbing case, a computer algorithm used widely by the U.S. court system to predict criminal recidivism and aid in criminal sentencing was found to falsely predict that black defendants were twice as likely to reoffend than white defendants. Believe it or not, these are just three well-known incidents of over 1,200 such incidents. Artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms have now long been hyped and touted to be able to make complex decisions about the world around them with superhuman perception and speed. But what about when it comes to algorithms making decisions and selecting outcomes about people and their behaviors? Welcome to the IQT podcast. On our last episode, we discussed the world of artificial intelligence assurance by exploring a recent audit that IQT Labs conducted on an open source deep learning tool called FakeFinder, which predicts whether a video is a deep fake or not. On today's episode, we dive deeper into AI bias and the bias testing portion of our audit. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesera, and joining me today, we have three guests. Andrea Brennan, who's the VP of Design and Visualization at IQT Labs. She's recently spent a lot of time understanding what it means to have trust in AI systems. We also have Andrew Burt, a managing partner at BNH.AI and chief legal officer at Immuta. He's also a visiting fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project. And we have Patrick Hall, a principal scientist also at BNH. Patrick serves as a visiting professor in the Department of Decision Sciences at the George Washington University. Andrea, Andrew, and Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. It's great to be here. Glad to be here. So let's start with a brief recap on uh, on AI assurance and the audit work that you did with, with FakeFinder. Andrea, I'll turn to you. Perhaps a quick refresher for our listeners, in case you're interested. We do have, a, as mentioned earlier at the top of this podcast, an episode that covers this in greater detail, so I encourage you all to check it out. But perhaps a quick history lesson, Andrea. Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, I would direct our listeners um, either to the previous podcast that we did or to one of the blog posts that we've done on this topic if you're interested in more detail. But in a nutshell, basically earlier this year, um, we conducted our first AI assurance audit um, in the labs. Uh, we looked in depth at this tool called FakeFinder, and we had to make a lot of decisions about how to approach this audit. And what we ended up doing is kind of looking at FakeFinder from four different perspectives. We did an ethics assessment. We looked at bias. Um, we looked at the user experience of the FakeFinder tool, and then we did a cybersecurity audit. And so what we're going to talk about today is uh, that bias portion of the audit. And uh, I'll just say briefly kind of why we felt that was an important perspective to look at. So we knew that FakeFinder, well, that the um, detector models within FakeFinder were trained on videos of human subjects. And so we wanted to understand if the tool or if the models performed differently for people uh, who belong to different protected classes. That was a type of bias that we really wanted to kind of understand if that was in the tool. Um, and I'll be honest, uh, Ryan and I, we have followed the research in this, um, in, in fairness and bias testing a little bit, but we really weren't sure kind of the best approach to take. Um, so what we decided to do early on in the project is reach out to Andrew and Patrick, who are two of the smartest people I know in this area, and get some advice from them about how to proceed. Um, and with that, I'll hand it over to them. So Andrew or Patrick, do maybe if you guys could just give us an overview of how you thought about approaching the bias testing, um, both from a technical perspective and from a legal perspective. 
Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and uh, I'll start. So um, uh, uh, I'll start with the, the, the legal perspective and I'll let Patrick chime in. I think for uh, as a side note, for folks who are not familiar with, with us and with BNH.AI, we're a boutique law firm based in Washington, D.C., uniquely based of composed of lawyers and data scientists. So I'm, I'm going to be representing the legal side of the house here today, and Patrick will be representing the, the data science side of the house. Um, so I think um, from a legal perspective, we, in general, and, and with our clients, we start from five decades of, of, of precedent in what it means to test for bias, and in particular, what it means to test for impermissible bias. And, and, and um, in the many decades since you know, the major anti-discrimination laws were passed in the United States, there's just a lot of materials. There's a lot of, of precedent for how courts and regulators and agencies seek to quantify um, what types of bias are impermissible. And so that's really kind of the starting point for what we do when we test these types of algorithmic decision-making systems. When we, we test them for bias, we start with what has been adjudicated and what we know we know works in the legal system. That's not to say there aren't better tests, and I'll, I'll let Patrick talk about that. Um, uh, there are many, many different types of tests, um, and there's a lot we could do, but we, we, we basically started with legal precedent as a foundation um, and then added a few uh, kind of additional tests. So with that, I'll pause um, and I'll let Patrick fill in the technical details. Sure, happily. Um... You know, I think whenever we start talking about bias testing, there's there's a lot of caveats, um, and and you know I'll I'll probably miss a few, but I think you know, Andrea started out her comments by saying you know bias testing was just one part of this audit, and and I think that that that's the correct mindset, and and in fact I say that bias testing is really just one part of understanding bias and unfairness, um, and, and illegal behaviors by AI systems, right? So. We'll talk about the test and and they are important, uh, but I think for the for the broader audience out there, you know, considerations around experimental design or considerations around user interactions can be just as important as any sort of bias testing result. But to get into what we actually did, uh, as as Andrew introduced, we do like to use as a foundation this long precedent of of legal bias testing approaches. And we like them because they're battle tested. We like them because they have somewhat clear interpretations. And we especially like them because they have thresholds. They have thresholds that you can go back into uh, regulatory commentary or court cases and see, hey, what is the number at which this measurement becomes problematic? And I think, you know, if, if you review the literature, there, there's a ton of really amazing and interesting work about bias testing happening now. But I'd say that that threshold notion is, is something that's sometimes missing from the newest research. Like we have to know, hey, if I'm measuring this, when is it bad? And so we started with a set of tests that, that have pretty well established uh, notions of, of when a value will be bad. Uh, for the more technical people listening in, the exact tests we perform um, were, were some statistical significance testing. We used the good old adverse impact ratio and four-fifths rule. And then we got into a uh, test of the system's performance, you know, its accuracy and error rates across different groups. And we're able to bring thresholds to bear from, from um, past legal commentary to decide when we make these measurements, you know, are they problematic? And, and I'll leave it at that. And I'm sure we'll have lots of details to dive into later. That's really interesting. Andrew, a question for you. Um, in, in the 
And this, you know, in using uh, previous legal precedent, how, in your opinion, um, how robust is it uh, in, in a modern environment where, say, you don't have, you know, you're not necessarily attributing fault or, or, or misgivings or wrongdoings to a human, but rather a machine that was trained by a human. Are you seeing uh, any sort of evolution in the way that the, the law perceives or treats, uh, say, a machine versus a human? Or is it largely that we're applying the same legal frameworks that, that we did to humans, to, to machines now? Um, I mean, so there are lots, there are lots of different questions uh, uh, that I could answer in there. I mean, I think um, from a legal standpoint, there, I mean, there are a couple of like kind of interesting edge cases where, where, where you could talk about some kind of like sci-fi notion of treating machines differently. But, but at the end of the day, um, it's always a human that is going to be at fault. Um, and so what the law tries to do is find those humans and, and find those organizations responsible. Um, there's a lot of nuance there. For example, in the, the, the fatal uh, uh, Uber crash where Uber hit a pedestrian, um, and the, the people who actually got held to account um, were, uh, I think it was, it was the driver or, or the, you know, the, the, the person sitting behind the wheel, even though it was on uh, um, autopilot, rather than the software developers. So, so there's a lot interesting to say about that. But, but by and large, um, right now, that's what legal frameworks uh, uh, are kind of concerned with. I think one of the reasons why we start with these types of, of notions, like even if, and, 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 and we started this audit, not by saying, you know, what are, what are specific regulators going to say about this, this model? Because right now this, this, this model is not directly subject to like regulatory oversight. Um, I think the reason why we started it um, uh, uh, and why we use legal precedent as a foundation here and really everywhere is exactly what Patrick said. I think, in the world of AI, just in general, things are moving so fast. And in the world of, of, of AI fairness, um, there's just a huge amount of uncertainty. And so what we try to do in these discussions is 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 um, kind of a hook or attach our analysis to something that is as grounded as possible. And I'll just say for, for technical folks, um, what we see when we get engaged in these discussions um, with clients and elsewhere, we see a huge amount of frustration. Everybody generally wants to do the right thing. Um, everybody generally has good intentions, um, but it is extremely easy. And I would say it's, it's, it's actually one of, one of the very big dangers in, in approaching a subject like this. It's extremely easy to get into really, really nebulous, interesting, entirely impractical discussions about what exactly counts as fairness and what exactly counts as bias. And those are really important conversations, but for operational folks with limited time and limited resources, um, we find it extremely important to anchor these discussions in something that's clear and concise um, and, and, and ensures there are results. So that's the thinking behind our approach. And also like we're a law firm. So kind of, of course, of course we're gonna look, look to the law. Um, but I think that's kind of, that explains the, the groundwork and the foundation that, that we started this, this assessment with. That's yeah. great, and thank you. I'll just I'll just sort of double double click on, um, you know, using law as a way to avoid the, these almost never ending discussions about what is fair from a philosophical or mathematical standpoint. I, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm qualified to answer either one of those questions. And then again, um, the battle tested nature of of these tests and again, the thresholds. So. I think that that's why we like to come from this sort of legal and regulatory standpoint. 
Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, the way we look, looked at it from the perspective of the audit was not that this bias testing or the results or the findings that came out of it, we're not suggesting that this is the only thing you would need to know about fake finder. But I think the, the reason that we were interested in working with BNH and understanding these legal precedents is that we saw this as kind of a minimum, right? So at, at the very least, you want to make sure that your tool isn't violating existing laws and precedents, right? It's not to say that that's enough. Like maybe that's maybe that's not enough at all. Maybe we want to go way, way beyond that. But but surely we can all agree that we don't want to do things that are discriminatory in the eyes of the law, right? Like we, we should at least be able to use that as a baseline. So again, I just want to say that we kind of view this as like a starting point, not the, you know, we don't think that we've kind of um, looked at every possible angle or every aspect of fairness that one might want to look at. I think that's a great point, Andrea, and I'll, I'll just chime in here that, right, as AI or, or you know, sometimes I prefer automated decision-making systems, as they, as they become more mature, right, we just have to transition out of this mindset of like, oh, you know, we did great on test data. Oh, we did great on the Kaggle leaderboard. Like, number one, these products have to be safe. Now, from an intelligence and military standpoint, safe may mean something very different than it does for, for a, you know, consumer product. But these products have to be safe. I would say, that, you know, the next baseline that we want to get to is legality. Like you said, you know, first safe, second legal, and then third real world performance. Right. And, and so like, I didn't even know that, you know, I didn't even say in the top three things that we should be thinking about. I didn't say test accuracy. I didn't say Kaggle. I didn't say leaderboards. Right. If, if we want AI to, to mature, we have to change the focus of our evaluations to safety, legality, and real-world performance, and away from sort of test and silica performance. And so that, that's maybe a, a broader comment, but, but you know, that, that's where my mind was going when you said, we want these things to be legal. And, and I would certainly agree with that. And I would hope that, that a lot of people out there who are building their own AI systems would, would have this minimum bar of legality, at least in the back of their mind. And that, that was another thing that we were trying to do with this audit is explore some, um, techniques that other teams might use as sort of a minimum minimum set of things that you you could test for in addition to um, performance and predictive accuracy, which I think is kind of a, co a common thing to test for in a lot of model development efforts. Um, so one thing that um, was an interesting surprise to me, again, ha having not gone through this process of bias testing before, one problem that I didn't really anticipate um, was some of the challenges we had around not having a data set with the appropriate labels that we needed in order to do the bias testing. So I'm wondering if you guys have any advice for other teams who are interested in doing similar types of bias tests, what you would recommend to, um, to other teams who might be in a similar situation. They wanna do some bias testing, but maybe they don't have the data that they need or data with the right labels that they need to do that. I, th I think Andrew should jump in from sort of a process standpoint, because that's really important. Um, and, and I'm happy to chime in with some of the more uh, technical aspects. Okay, I'm gonna get ahead of my skis here though, Patrick, and okay. I, I might steal some of your thunder, That's but um, sure. So it's, it's actually, interestingly, it's one of the biggest practical problems we see over and over for teams that actually wanna do this. There are so many teams and companies that you know, practice the fairness through unawareness and where they basically say, we're gonna deprive our models of, of any direct and, and we're gonna get rid of any uh, direct information about demographic groups so that the model 
can't, you know, in theory, can't be racist or can't be sexist or whatever. Um, there is some kind of legal precedent to doing it um, if, if, if ensuring that your model is blind to those um, uh, 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 classes of data um, uh, does kind of help organizations avoid any accusations that the model is, is, is engaging in any disparate treatment. Um, but by and large, we find from a practical perspective, um, that approach does not work um, for, for a bunch of reasons. There's academic research that shows it doesn't actually work. Um, but also if you just kind of don't want that data and you say, well, I'm, I'm not even, I don't even want to know um, exactly what you're saying, Andrea, it becomes very difficult to actually do the testing to avoid the more kind of insidious type of bias called, called, called disparate impact. Um, and so there are a couple things. Um, I mean, one is I think just in the data collection process um, to get these concerns, um, uh, uh, to really surface these concerns, um, we, we find, we see organizations all the time raising this as an issue like many, many, many months after data is actually collected. And so getting the data scientists who actually want to do the, 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 the testing, getting them talking to, you know, depends who they are, but, but, but the folks in charge of actually collecting the data um, and making clear that this is something that they actually need and, 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 and bringing this up as a topic of discussion early, I think is just really important, like getting this on the radar as an issue. Um, aside from that, there are, a lot of different um, uh, methods for inferring demographic um, uh, uh, groups. Um, and so one of them, the one that we tend to recommend most, most frequently actually came out of the CFPB. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's called BISG. It actually comes from a regulator, which um, I think makes us and, and makes our, our clients feel more comfortable. Um, but, but I think in short, if you can't get the data directly, which is what you wanna try to do, um, there are a lot of ways of inferring um, demographic group status from very typical um, uh, uh, types of data, address. like name, exactly, name and address or zip code. So um, let me stop. I probably did get ahead of my skis, Patrick. Um, so feel free to jump in. Sure. So I just say again, and I think a lot of my comments are going to go back to this theme of like, we have to break out of this Kaggle game test set in silica mindset and think like, this is a product that's going to be used in the real world. And, you know, that, that can have both positive and negative consequences. And so, you know, something that, that I work with data scientists and our clients on is just reframing the way you think about these problems. So, so if you want to be serious about bias testing, you need to think about it from the very earliest days of the project. And what that means in, in a very basic sense is that you're going to have to extend your timelines. So, you know, this, this, Again, another great mindset to get out of would be the go fast and break things mindset, especially for products that are going to affect humans. And so, you know, we have to break out of this mindset and think if this is a real product, right? It real it needs real time to bake and it re needs real resources, right? It, it needs to have groups of people who are well-resourced, who can get the data they need and have the time that they need to bake the product nicely and test it correctly. And so, you know, that, that just goes against so much of what I see in the, in the data science community, where it's just like fast and bad, go as fast as you can deal with whatever problems come up later. Um, and, and that mindset is just not going to work for, for bias testing and minimizing bias and, and automated decision-making. Also, sorry, just, just, this is, I think we're kind of skirting around this, but just one thing that I think is really, really important to say, 
and even in the 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 the, the IC ethics, the, the, the guidelines, the questions we use to conduct this, this audit, one of the questions specifically says, what are the potential trade-offs between bias and accuracy? And I think one really, really important thing that um, we do and, and, and you know, continue to kind of shout from the rooftops um, is I think there really is a common misconception, especially in the data science community, that there is a trade-off between bias and, and, and accuracy. And if you want the most accurate system, you know, you're, you're going to have to deal with, with bias. And I, and I would just say that in real world systems, the two are inherently connected. If, if, if you have a system that is very accurate and performing very well for, you know, white men, but not performing for other groups, um, uh, even if they're very, very small minority groups, you know, you know, 0.5% of, of a user base might, might count as that. Um, uh, it's still a really big issue. You're not going to have as accurate. You're not going to have a, a model that's performing as well if it is biased. And so I think one of the things we say a lot uh, and we would kind of impress upon people who are listening is to get out of this this trap of thinking it's one or the other or there has to be some trade off. Um, if you are doing accuracy correctly, you know, we would say if you're thinking about performance correctly, you're also thinking about bias and testing for bias and trying to minimize it so that all different groups of people get the same levels of, of performance. Yeah, uh, uh, and Rochelle, I know, I know you had a question and, and I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, just, just to sort of take what Andrew said and, and fill in some technical details. Testing the performance of your model across the important segments in your data uh, should just be a default model debugging step. Now. You know, we can talk about whether those segments are demographic or not. When they're demographic, that gets into bias testing, essentially. But, you know, for, for any data scientists out there tuning in, I, I just think, you know, we're, we're all guilty of looking at these average test metrics across test data. And it's borderline meaningless, actually. Uh, we really have to dig in and test how models perform in the meaningful segments in our data, you know, just, just as a baseline performance check. Uh, and, and so I'll leave it at that. We should, we should transition to, to Vishal's question, but, but just wanted to add some technical flavor to Andrew's comments. I think that makes sense. Patrick, I was going to ask you, um, you made mention of, uh, you know, in your, in your discussion around, you know, uh, safety, legality, and then maybe tertiarily thinking through, uh, all the things that we are spending a lot of time thinking about right now, which is Kaggle leader, leaderboards. One thing that strikes me as maybe being evident, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, is it seems to be the case that in the case, in testing for and evaluating and attempting to mitigate or reduce to a reasonable extent AI bias, it's not the case that you can simply create, you know, do, test your algorithm on test data, put it out into the, into the real world, into the wild, and then leave it be and just assume that I guess I've, I have de-biases as much as I can as of, as of launch, and that is the end of this. It strikes me that when you mention timeline increase for the, the amount of time that you need to dedicate, you know, a well-resourced team would have to dedicate to this, there certainly is a tail end of not just O&M, but literally keeping track of unanticipated yes. biases that are showing up in the real world. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. It's something that has to be monitored. So I think, you know, it, for, for very mission critical mon models and, and decision-making systems, we, we always urge our clients to track performance, security, and bias over time because they can all be dynamic, right? And, and moreover, just, just another sort of you know, if, if I'm, if, if I've reached this level of my career, I'll say pro tip for people out there listening in, um, correcting bias can, can have a lot of unintended consequences and in fact make bias worse. And so something that, that 
Andrew and I work on a lot is sort of like, what is the minimal intervention we can do here to, to bring some of these bias testing numbers up into an acceptable range? Because just like you said, not only is fairness dynamic and, and can change over the course of a model's deployment, um, it's pretty well known that, that interventions that humans take to try to, to try to make things better can often just make things worse. So I think, again, as kind of a pro tip, oftentimes it's, it's safest just to think what's the most minimal intervention I can do here to, to improve the fairness of this product. So, but really good points, Michelle. Makes sense. Thank you. And Andrew, one thing that's, I think, uh, on the top of my mind in regards to the things that you were discussing, bias, you know, the, the concept of taking a bias to the extent with which we are mitigating the, uh, the amount of, of, of problematic bias that exists in, in sort of a human cognition into machines. I, I'm all in agreement we should reduce that. But what comments from you on, isn't, isn't an inference, like you know, the act of inferring something, an artificially intelligent uh, algorithm that is, that is designed to make a decision on something, isn't there like a, a certain amount of bias that you do want it to have in order for it to function, per, you know, to, to have a certain level of performance or, or I should do something that it's supposed to do? Yeah, so um, uh, really good question. A couple actually quotes come to mind. One is the famous George Box um, all models uh, phrase, uh, all models are wrong, some are useful. Um, and so, yes, all, all models are going to have bias. And in fact, um, uh, the way that the ISO defines bias is something that I think is actually really helpful. So I'm actually just going to read it, which is um, the ISO just defines bias as the degree to which a reference value deviates from the truth. Um, and I, I think it's a really interesting way of defining bias. Um, uh, and I don't want to take us down too deep a, a, a rabbit hole here. But I think, um, I think the key takeaway from a practical perspective, <clears throat> I think, is to acknowledge the fact that we're dealing with the real world. All data is going to be an approximation of the re real world. All models are going to be, in some sense, wrong in, in that they're an approximation of the real world. And so I think understanding that bias is unavoidable um, is very helpful. In some cases, bias might be desirable. Um, I think it's very helpful to, to, to kind of accept that as a starting point. And then the question becomes, um, how much can we reduce bias? How practical is it um, to the extent that any bias is actually remaining? If that bias is harmful, is it justified? Um, is there any reason why we could have done additional uh, steps that could have minimized it? These are, I think, the questions that we find to be a lot more kind of practical. Um, and um, I would love to uh, pause and, and get philosophical here and, and talk more about bias, but I'm kind of going to, I'm, I'm going to bite my tongue. Um, but it's a really, really important question. And I think it's one that we've seen over and over again, throws off data science teams um, and uh, uh, can really kind of take their focus on, uh, off of getting a reasonable, you know, uh, uh, reduction of bias, like that's what we want them to do, um, and, and instead kind of throws them in another direction. I, I think a really important corollary here is we've all been over, over the past 10 or 20 years, uh, you know, in the, in the competing on analytics age, uh, we've all been kind of sold this, this fairy tale about data, you know, data is, and, and all right, before I get into this little short rant, I think data-driven decision-making is great, perhaps the best way to make a decision. But that said, uh, data can be garbage, right? Data is often garbage. I mean, training data can be wrong, it can be biased. And if you have wrong and biased training data, then you're gonna have a wrong and biased model. And so I think, I think that's another one of those sort of like pop 
kind of social media type type you know vendor spiel things like data is amazing data is going to help you answer all the questions no you, you cannot assume that data can have all kinds of errors uh it can be poisoned it can be fake it can be biased uh and, and so you really have to break out of this mindset of of trusting data completely uh, and and think about what these problems in data mean for your machine learning systems and how you would act to correct them. Uh, and and so you know I I think that that one reason you know Andrew said this also sort of spins data science teams into a tailspin thinking about this. And I think one reason why is just because we've all you have to do some counter programming, right? We've all been told like Kaggle data data driven decision making AI Python GPU and not much of that actually makes any sense. Um, so I would just say, um, and, and, and as we see kind of frontline data scientists and data science teams encounter these issues, we see all the time it's impossible for this, this system to be biased because we did exactly what we, it's doing exactly what we programmed it to do. You know, it has the data, the data has to be right. And it's, we, we optimize for performance and therefore it's done. It can't be biased. Um, and there's just a tremendous amount of nuance um, to these issues. And so I would say, accepting that there's nuance, kind of getting away from this um, uh, uh, binary, things are perfect um, or they're, you know, uh, or they're the worst, getting out of this mentality. And I think moving away from just a very kind of myopic focus on performance is, um, I was going to say the best way to do this, but I really would say it's the only way to do it. If you, if you don't do it that way, um, it's going to be impossible to get really any results. Yeah, I, guess I, I wanted to respond to an earlier comment, Andrew, that you were making, um, and and also this idea that all models are wrong, some but some are useful. I think part of what we were trying to do with this audit, um, in a broader sense, was just really look at what we had in front of us, right? So, I mean, maybe I think a, an aspirational goal would be to say, okay, we want to understand where are these models biased, and then we want to do whatever we can to mitigate or to fix that bias so that we get the best model possible. That's obviously a great goal, but I actually think this testing can be really useful, even just in raising the awareness around where the bias is, right? You can, you can still use a model that has problems or that has blind spots as long as you know what they are. I think the, when the real problems come in is when you're using a model and you don't quite understand what the problems or the limitations are. And so it's giving you some results and you don't quite understand when should you trust those results and, and when can you not trust them, right? So I think, you know, it, there's even value just in more transparency about where the bias is or in what ways is a particular model biased. And I think that's like, again, that that's just something that we we have to get to that step if we're gonna use these tools in any kind of real world setting. Like we have to, at the very least, understand what we're dealing with. No, to totally agree. And and I think, you know, in our client interactions and my teaching and stuff, I'll, I'll see it's like, oh, we failed a four fiscal test. You know, I, oh, I failed the class or product's trash. No, no, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's concerning if you then go and deploy it without doing anything about that. But as you said, Andrea, it, it just needs to evolve to be part of the, the workflow uh, and, and be something that data scientists and their managers and their collaborators uh, learn, learn to handle in, in a professional setting. I want to optimistically suggest that some of our listeners uh, tuning in right now are, are, are maybe tinkering around with the fake finder tool. 
Um, you three have had a very close and familiar and intimate look from, from many perspectives. Uh, and, and bias testing is one of the, I think, four perspectives that you, or the dimensions you analyzed. Let's, let's dig a little deeper into what you found, uh, specific to Fake Finder when you conducted your bias testing. Maybe, you know, a, a little bit of an overview on perhaps test, uh, te test cases, um, and things you found, test methods and what you learned. Sure. There's tons of interesting, this was such a, an interesting project. Um, one really interesting thing about testing bias in, in deep fakes is do you test the face or the body? And I think we went back and forth on this and, and just decided to be safe and do both when, when we could. Uh, and, and so that was a really interesting twist to me, right? We essentially can have two people in one image and those people could be different genders. They could be different races. Uh, and, and how do you account for that was, was uh, an interesting challenge. Um, in terms of the results, you know, what we saw was, was that, you know, when it came, when, when, and this is typical of neural networks in my, in my experience, uh, you know, high confidence predictions, uh, when fake finder was right, um, its decisions were remarkably equitable. Uh, we saw, we saw good performance across different demographic groups when the system was right, uh, which of course, and the system is usually right, but like every, uh, you know, like every, every machine learning system, it can be wrong. And that's really when we saw the bias kick in. Uh, it, it just seemed like, you know, when, when the system was wrong, it would be really wrong. And, and the results were, were kind of all over the place when it was wrong. And that's when we really saw the bias kick in was, was when, um, you know, we, we were using label data, you know, you do have to use test data, even, even me all high and mighty, I, I still have to use test data. So when we were using test data and, and we were able to see, oh, you know, fake finders wrong on this instance, it was those instances where, where we saw more bias across the different demographic groups. When it, when it was right, the performance and, and fairness characteristics looked fairly, looked fairly decent. I'm curious about vulnerabilities in, in these and the onus of responsibility. In some cases, uh, you know, you're, you're perhaps beholden to the data you have. I think we talked about this earlier, good quality data in, good quality data or inference out, and quite quite the opposite is, is also true. Is it the responsibility, uh, and this is a philosophical question, so feel free to just gloss over this and not get into great detail, but in the case of maybe fake finder specifically, how much of the responsibility is on the developers or the, those who are responsible for architecting and engineering the tool? And how much responsibility falls upon perhaps those who are going to, in our case, you know, pull it down from the open source, use it, and need a balanced data set toward actually make it work right? Where does, where does, is, is there a line? Like, should we be robust to uh, unbalanced, unfair data sets and, and sort of raise a flag uh, in, in the software? Or is it is it the case that we simply communicate, hey, look, these are the known vulnerabilities of the software. You you best have these these best practices in place when it comes to the data you use. Or is, or is it some hybrid approach? I'm I'm going to jump in here and say that that. You know, I think your your baseline responsibility, which we keep talking about, is is what you said. Like, look, we're publishing these the system. These are the known biases. You need to be aware of them. We're working to correct them. You know, in, in future releases. I, I think that that's you know that's sort of the minimum. You know, I, I think in terms of a philosophical question, we really need to get. So one, it should not just be data scientist's responsibility. I mean, I I love to pick on data scientists. I I in fact like this quote. Uh, you know, the, the, all data scientists are wrong, but some are useful. So, so a, a twist on, on the box quote. Uh, but, 
but it, it can't just be the data scientist's responsibility, right? They, they need support from all over the organization to get this stuff right. But I do think what's missing in a lot of data science practice is what you would find in, you know, civil engineering or medicine, right? Where part of their education includes an ethical component and they have these sort of ongoing licensing uh, procedures that oftentimes include sort of updated ethical education. And so I think we just need to get to the point where data scientists can make sort of basic frontline ethical decisions and know when to raise the flag and run it up the chain and, and get more help. And, and we're just not there yet. I mean, and, and I don't mean that about InQtel, I mean that about just the broader economy. I would, I would add just that even the, the baseline minimum and, and, and Vishal, I thought you did a good job of describing what it might be to just the transparency, you know, we're, 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 uh, um, uh, releasing this and here are its limitations. Um, that is so far from the reality today, just like getting from where we are to that level of transparency, there is such a long way to go, um, just to get to, I think what we would say is the bare minimum. Um, and so. Um, certainly, I think legal standards and best practices are going to come to play here in, in, in the coming years. Um, but I think before then, um, I think one of the most effective things that we see in practice is just developing standards for what you say about the model you release or the data that you're, you're exposing and making available. So just something as simple as like standardized documentation um, can go a huge way in minimizing these risks and, and, and frankly, many other risks. And so that's like one of the things when organizations come and they say, we know we have this problem. We want to make a significant dent in it. Um, we have limited time. We have limited resources. That's really like one of the first places that you can start of just standardizing the way that you disclose, you know, model artifacts or data or whatever it might be. Model cards are great. Model cards are great. I just want, I want to make one one comment um, kind of along the lines of transparency. I completely agree with what Andrew is saying. I think, um, Anybody who's involved in model development across the different stages um, has a responsibility to be transparent about what they're doing and to disclose the limitations that they're aware of. And I just want to make a comment about that in terms of our own process. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that when we were doing this work and the bias testing specifically, we didn't have a particularly diverse uh, team who was doing this work. And I just want to acknowledge that the labeled data set that we use is based on our team's perception of the uh, demographics of the subjects in the videos. And so we understand the communication and uh, I feel like we should own up to that um, and be very clear about what it is we were actually testing for. Um, but just as an example, I think it's like, in order to do this well, everybody involved at uh, different stages of the process needs to kind of own up to the things that they're aware of that are limitations in their own. On that transparency note that, that Andrew brought up, one thing that we were really impressed that the InQtel team had done was they used the model card standard, which again, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I, I think of model cards as sort of the minimum of model documentation, but we encounter, you know, that level of systemic documentation in like one or 2% of our, of our work. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, kudos, kudos to the InQtel team for, for using model cards and publishing their, their model cards. They help a lot. They really, really help a lot. And, and I think that, that, you know, as more data scientists have this experience of, of building real products and needing to answer really tough questions about them, these model documentation standards are going to become more prevalent. That, that's my hope anyway. Great points. Andrea, Andrew, and Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to hear more or learn more about what we discussed today in terms of bias testing or 
try your hand at the fake finder tool, I encourage you all to check out the IUT Labs GitHub repository. Additionally, you can check out the IUT.org blog, and I encourage you to check out bnh.ai for a set of resources and publications that they have released on this topic as well. Thank you again, and until next time.